Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today's Tuesday, January 23rd, day 109 of the war with Hamas. Amanda Borchel Dan here with our military reporter Emmanuel Fabian and diplomatic correspondent Lazer Behrman. Hello to you both. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Lazer. Good morning. Israelis awoke today to the terrible announcement that 21 soldiers fell in Gaza yesterday. Manny will explain what we know what happened. Laser is here and will discuss the calls for a two-state solution by European Union foreign ministers, as well as calls for a ceasefire from a growing number of people. We'll hear about how Iran is acting in the region and whether the puppet master will pull even more strings. All this and more when we're back. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Manny, 21 Israeli soldiers were killed yesterday when they came under attack in the southern Gaza Strip, triggering a blast that collapsed two buildings with soldiers inside them. Please tell us what you know about what happened. Uh, We're talking about the um, deadliest, the single deadliest incident since uh, Israel launched its ground operation in the Gaza Strip. Um, Some of the details surrounding this blast uh, remain unclear, but from uh, what we know is um, these uh, reservist forces were operating uh, in an area very close to the Israeli border, about 600 meters from the border, uh, near the uh, southern community of Kisufim. Uh, they were working uh, in an area there to um, uh, destroy uh, Hamas infrastructure and raise buildings that are close to the Israeli border as part of Israel's efforts to establish a, a sort of buffer zone um, between um, the Israeli border and, a, and about a kilometer into the strip. And this is uh, aimed at enabling Israelis to return to their communities uh, without any risk of uh, Hamas launching attacks against them. Uh, and now during this uh, operation, um, Israeli troops had been rigging these um, buildings with mines. Uh, it is the type of explosive they used to demolish these type of buildings. Um and then uh, during this, uh, during these preparations, um, uh, from what the army knows is that uh, Hamas operatives fired uh, an RPG at a tank that had been securing the forces next to them, um, hitting the tank, and then um, simultaneously this um, large blast occurred um, from these mines that were in the buildings, uh, collapsing two buildings. 
uh, and burying dozens of soldiers underneath. And um, from this, we know that 21 soldiers were killed. Several others were wounded, including one seriously. Um, and uh, among the 21 soldiers, two of them uh, were killed in the tank. Uh, so it's not yet clear as to what exactly set off um, the explosives in the building. It may have been a second uh, RPG fired at the building. It may have been as a result of the first one that hit the tank and then set off some other chain reaction. It's something that is uh, still under investigation. But uh, regardless, the um, rescue efforts took many hours um, yesterday to evacuate all these uh, casualties from inside uh, these collapsed buildings. Rescue forces described it as a sort of like a scene of a of an earthquake. Uh, it was that bad. So just a very, very difficult uh, event this morning. Whenever these difficult events happen, there's always this push-pull. Should the army continue? Should the army pull out? And Israel has reportedly submitted a proposal through Qatari and the Egyptian mediators that would see it agree to pause its military offensive against Hamas for as long as two months. The question is always, of course, what would that do to the war effort in general? And would it stymie the IDF's efforts to topple Hamas? Yeah, so I just want to take issue a little bit with the, the premise of the question, um, I think we've seen not only in Israel, but certainly in Israel, that when there are uh, difficult days like this, where there's uh, significant uh, casualties, that's something that we all feel. I don't think it, I think it doubles down the resolve. People's resolve gets stronger. I haven't heard any calls for ending a war because uh, soldiers got injured. I mean, this is this is something I think that the country understands that we need to do. That it's going to be, it's going to be cost us dearly in casualties, and I think this only uh, strengthens um, our resolve. But like you said, at the same time, there are these proposals being reported in the media. This is not coming from the government, but is coming from people that uh, generally have very good sources. That we could see a pause of the war for two months in exchange for all of the uh, all of the hostages. Um, I think this underlines something that a lot of people don't want to talk about, and this is a very difficult thing because uh, there's two goals I think that everyone kind of agrees upon and that the government has explicitly stated as the two main war aims. One, the return of all of Israel's hostages, and number two, the toppling of Hamas, dismantling their military and, uh, and, and, and civil abilities to rule the Gaza Strip. I've said from the beginning, and I think this really underlines it, that those two goals stand in direct uh, tension and opposition with one another. I think we have to decide what our main war aim is. If it is the return of the hostages, then that is going to be our war aim. And there are certainly deals out there, which would mean we are not going to topple Hamas, or it's, we're going to make it much more difficult and costly for ourselves to top, topple Hamas, but we're going to get um, most, if not all, of the hostages back. Obviously, some of them um, have been killed in in Hamas uh, captivity. If our goal is to topple Hamas and to make sure that they can never uh, kill another Israeli citizen, or they can certainly never carry out any sort of terrorist attack, and they can't build up military strength in a uh, territory that they control, then things like this, where we're going to give two months for them to reconstitute, uh, to rearm, to rebuild some defenses, uh, I think, uh, you know, stand directly in the way of, of that type of goal. And that might mean 
that we are going to give up the opportunity to get many hostages back because we understand that in the long run, we are putting more Israelis at risk. That's a very, very difficult trade-off. Um, it certainly runs counter to the to the feelings of, of, of Israelis and people around the world, who, who, certainly the families, who very understandably know that their loved ones are living and they could be brought back and they should be brought back immediately. But this is a very difficult uh, choice to make. And I think the government is trying to have it both ways. Manny, we've seen from the week-long ceasefire that the IDF doesn't pull out of the Gaza Strip entirely and, in fact, keeps a significant number of forces in. But yesterday, you even reported about another brigade being sent home for rest and recreation, and this is on top of other brigades. So at the same time that we're discussing this ceasefire, we're already seeing that several of the brigades are being let out. How, how do you see the ceasefire uh, affecting the operations in Gaza? If there is a long-term ceasefire that does require, uh, or the agreement requires Israel to completely remove itself from from Gaza, that would be very complicated for Israel to restart its operations. Um, but if we're talking about something uh, shorter term, where the army can maintain uh, sort of lines in Gaza like it did in the last ceasefire, where it can uh, move back slightly, create defenses for itself, and not lose uh, hold of the ground. Um, then that will be uh, less of a problem. Um, we know that n- even though some brigades are being released, um, they are being either replaced by other forces uh, or they're just um, not needed at this stage for the sort of operations that are being carried out. Um, we know there's been heavy fighting in Khan Yunus. There's been a very uh, large push there using uh, four brigades um, pushing deeper into Hanunis, they've completed the encirclement of the city uh, just last night. Um, but then in central Gaza and in northern Gaza, you have just uh, one division in each of those areas, and they aren't uh, really maneuvering on the ground. They are just carrying out smaller operations and basically maintaining hold of the ground and, and scanning the area for any additional Hamas infrastructure and, and fighters. It's a very different type of fighting. Um, so the the sort of the large push um, effort would would only work um, if the army is still maintaining hold of the ground there and not pulling out completely. But these smaller operations that we're seeing in North Gaza and in some in some parts of Central Gaza, even if the army was to completely leave the area, they could still uh, go back and continue because uh, it's it's just a different type of fighting. It doesn't require the massive amount of forces. Laser, would you like to piggyback off of what Manny just said? Yeah, in addition to the um, the tactical and operational difficulties that we, we would be creating for ourselves by stopping a war uh, or a campaign for for multiple weeks, possibly even two months, giving the enemy a chance to reconstitute and redeploy, uh, we have to think about what's going on in the international space. Obviously, our biggest ally and friend, the United States, the Biden administration, Joe Biden is suffering uh significant political damage for his support among the progressive wing of his party, among Arab Americans, and that is endangering his uh, chances to get reelected against probably Donald Trump. Um, Let's think about it. Two months from now, we're going to be that much closer to the general election. It's probably going to be, we're going to, the Republican primary will be effectively over. And the last thing that the, uh, that the White House will want to see is, seeing all these scenes of damage in the Gaza Strip and and more demonstrations. And he'll, he'll be blamed by these same elements of the American uh, body politic for allowing Israel to commit, quote unquote, air quotes, this genocide. 
Um, I think the the idea that we're going to be giving uh, the ability to, to to continue to do this, especially in the southern Gaza Strip, and we haven't really touched Rafiach yet, and if we want to start operating there, there's going to be significant collateral damage. I think that is, we really have to understand that that, that, that might not be possible. We've already seen at the EU uh, Foreign Affairs Council yesterday where the EU foreign ministers get together. Also, our new foreign minister, Israel Katz, was there. Um, Joseph Burrell, uh, you know, no, no great friend of Israel uh, of late, uh, is presented a 10-point peace plan, basically saying doesn't really matter if Israel's on board or not. We're, we're going to start pushing this uh, two-state solution. It's it's language that has come out of the White House as well. It's language that we're hearing uh, as the price for further normalization, especially with Saudi Arabia. There's really no appetite once we stop and once some you know civilians start going home to to get back into this again. So I think uh, you know stopping the momentum, stopping the operation. Uh, is going to mean that we have given up on the goal of toppling Hamas at least this year. Um, and, and people have to decide whether which of the two war aims is more important, whether it's getting rid of Hamas or whether it's bringing back the hostages. Again, a difficult, difficult choice to make, but I think that is the uh, the position that we find ourselves in. Many will say goodbye to you now and go to a short break. Thank you. I got married this Monday in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like my friend has a 4x4. Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag and a tent (laughs) and just go. I texted him like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their like blankie their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel's story wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Iran is, quote, very directly involved in ship attacks that Yemen's Houthi rebels have carried out during Israel's war against Hamas, the Navy's top Middle East commander told the Associated Press on Monday. But Laser, isn't this just really the tip of the iceberg of their capabilities? What are you seeing? So when you talk about their capabilities, I think you hit the nail right on the head in that the the uh, most effective part of Iran's capabilities is not really their capabilities. It's the capabilities of their proxy forces. And we've seen how much more wide-ranging and capable they are uh, than we even have considered in the past. Of course, you have Hamas, uh, which carried out the October 7th massacres. You have Hezbollah, which immediately started firing on Israel. And there's a real growing chance uh, of the war or a new war uh, spreading to the to the northern border, and of course we have these Houthis that uh, you know we we paid attention to the Yemen civil war, but now that they're affecting global trade, uh, it's becoming an issue for the entire world. We have this multinational U.S.-led coalition against them as well. Certainly, someone uh, whose whose capabilities are, are are built significantly by Iran, they wouldn't be able to do what they're doing without Iran. We have the Shiite militias, which were the core of Iran's strategy to uh, have a stranglehold on the Iraqi state and then to prop up the Assad regime in Syria, and they've tried to target Israel as well. That's another element. 
What we see here is that Iran prefers to use proxy forces because then it doesn't have to pay the price of attacking all of these um, all of these uh, opponents in the region and beyond. Uh, but what we also saw last week was that Iran was striking three of its neighbors directly: Iraq, Syria, and Pakistan. Right? Pakistan. We spoke about this. But why is it doing that? Why is it changing the way it operates? Um, it suffered some very direct attacks on its own soil. There was that that deadly attack, that ISIS attack in Kerman at the uh, at the death, uh, the anniversary of the death of Qasem Soleimani, and there was an attack in December, which probably most people didn't notice, from this Jaysh al Adal al Baluchi um, uh, separatist group on the Pakistan Iranian border, which killed eleven Iranian uh, servicemen and policemen. That is why. Ostensibly, they attacked into Pakistan, but Pakistan nuclear armed power struck back, showed that Iran can be attacked. When Iran attacks directly, Iraq isn't going to do anything. Syria's not going to do anything, but Pakistan certainly will. It shows the limits of Iranian power. And another aspect that shows kind of Iranian weakness is that they wanted to strike back at Israel. Israel's been killing IRGC soldiers and even senior commanders. And how do they strike back directly at Israel? They struck in Iraqi Kurdistan, said that there was this Mossad base that they hit. All the Kurds denied it. And that they killed this uh, Kurdish oil tycoon who they said was selling oil to Israel. Not something that sounds especially um, reliable. And even so, it's no uh, great uh, strike to Israel. So it shows how limited, uh, how, how Iran struggles to, to harm Israel directly. Again, those, but it can do is those proxy forces, but then it is, doesn't show its own direct power. Let's not forget, all of this is meant to drive the U.S. out of the Middle East to show that it can affect global trade, that it can take a pri- that it can extract a, a price from the United States if it tries to get involved. I think it's important that the White House, even though it's an election year, shows that it is determined uh, to be part of this region, to stop Iranian influence from spreading, um, and to really damage Iranian proxies. We've seen that with the Houthis. Hezbollah is a different issue, but we really need to see some resolve from the White House if uh, Iran is going to start reining itself in or is going to be reined in. This is really fascinating. And in fact, the Pakistani piece is really interesting, especially since, if I'm not mistaken, it's a nuclear power. And so you just have to wonder why is Iran going to mess with that? Yeah, again, I think they really felt that they are being seen as weak at a time where they can't be seen as weak. There's a war going on across the the region, right? So, um, and and they are suffering uh, strikes from Israel, and and their their proxies are are fighting right now, um, and they also have domestic opponents, opponents of the regime, whether it's Sunni, whether it's these. Um, uh, you know, people that want to see a return to the Shah or just don't want to see the Islamic uh, Republic continue, they really felt like they need to show strength. I don't think they showed strength here internally. They didn't show it to the region, but to the United States, whenever uh, they can show that they can cause chaos in the region, it's you don't want to get involved with the message to the United States. I think that does resonate. You've seen the Biden White House, even though it is attacking uh, the Houthis in Yemen, it certainly doesn't want another Middle Eastern war on its watch before an election season. I don't think that that serves anyone's, uh, that's not what anyone in the White House wants, but I think it's a mistake if, if the White House shows weakness, then you're going to see more of this from Iran. 
Okay, on the optics of the White House, I mean, there could be some that would say, so they're joining the fight to allow my Amazon order to come more easily to my home. And where are they when it comes to human rights and where it comes to, you know, people who are being slaughtered? So they're protecting my my mercantile online shopping, but where are they in terms of protecting people? I, I would ask which people uh, are you referring to here? Are you talking about... I mean, there's people on the far left of the United States who would say Gazans are being slaughtered and uh, all these accusations. But let's forget that, uh, you know, how many hundreds of thousands died in the Yemeni civil war that the, the U.S. played some part in, in helping agreements come together, but it wasn't about to stop. There's limits to what the U.S. can do. Uh, you know, if you go back to the Bush days, that was really an attempt to reconstitute the Middle East and uh, with a human rights agenda. Biden came in with a human rights agenda as well. Talked about making the Saudis a pariah state, and you know, and talked tough about Turkey as well. Discovered the limits of it. He needs, uh, he needs, uh, you know, natural gas and oil from these countries. He needs a linchpin for American power in the region without America standing in more forces. The big ally of the of the Biden administration, in the Middle East, now has been Qatar, which of course is a terrible human rights uh, violator. But they really have become central to U.S. aims in the Middle East, whether it's mediation, uh, whether it's, uh, it's helping the Biden administration come to th those deals with, with Iran over the past year. Uh, human rights and realpolitik in the region, I sadly, don't go hand in hand. You have to do business with some unsavory partners. And Israel does have to as well. So whether it's Egypt, whether it's the Saudis, even these Gulf countries that we love to talk about as these modern, yeah, economically, they do quite well, but none of them are democracies in every way. If, see what happens if you try speaking out against the, the powers that be. Um, that's just the price of business. And I think Trump got assailed for, for doing business with the Saudis and Turkey and and then, you know, the Biden administration came in and said they were going to do something differently. And I think they learned uh, the hard way, the way the Middle East is. And that's something that we know. And that's something that it's always going to be. You know, if you want to keep Iran at bay, you have to do business with, uh, with Arab regimes that are human rights offenders, but you do want them on your side. Thank you for that, Laser. Now, I would like you to put on your chaplain hat. I don't know if many people know, but in your previous life in university, I believe you were a chaplain. And as I mentioned at the beginning of our episode, today is a very terrible day for Israelis. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on where to find the strength, where to find the resolve to continue, even as our sons, our neighbors, our cousins, our brothers are being slaughtered. Yeah, so it's uh, you know a difficult day, and I, it's unique in Israel the way these um, these things are felt and and, and the way um, people respond to them. I think as you spoke about at the beginning, we know so many people, right? So when you when you lose um, you know twenty one soldiers, a lot of the country, maybe most of the country, has some personal connection. So that's one aspect of it. Another aspect is that. There's this desire to be involved in some way, this need to be involved, which I think is a healthy desire. Um, I think the least helpful and the least healthy thing would be to just read about it all day and then sink into some kind of helpless depression and let that affect your own personal life. I think that's not helpful. Certainly read the story, certainly understand who these people were, but there's so many ways um, to feel like you're a part of this uh, country and this effort. And and I think that's when people find strength. You know, certainly when I did my reserves, I felt a surge of strength um, to be part of this group of incredible people who are, 
you know, doing something difficult, but doing it well. And you're reminded of, of the power of the society around you and the unity of, of the society around you. So whether that is get involved in new volunteer efforts or something even as simple um, as going to synagogue, even if you're not religious, you know, going into a religious space and just seeing something that has been part of us for, you know, all these years and has been part of the strength of the Jewish people, being part of that can really help you you know, have the strength to continue going about your day and, and functioning at these difficult times. You know, no one needs anybody to sink into personal depression and stay at home. Obviously, the families of these people, that's going to be part of, of their experience, but we don't need the whole country to do that. It, it's not personally healthy and it's, it's not um, healthy for anyone else. At the same time, I just want to make another point that something that always strikes me when you have these pictures of these uh, mostly young men that, that die and people say, wow, they seem incredible. You know, I wish I could have spoken with them. At the same time, there are hundreds of thousands of living, uh, kicking, fighting soldiers who are still fighting. You see them all the time on the street. They're, they're friends, their family, you know, their friends. These are people that you can still connect to. And, and thank God they're here. And there's so many things you can do for them, whether it's just a stranger on the street or, or you join these groups where soldiers need to ride up north or south. These are things you can do for the soldiers that are going to be continuing the fight. And they're all over there. And you can just thank a soldier on the street. And it might be a little bit awkward for a second, but people really do appreciate it. I certainly did when I was in uniform. And I think we should focus on that, that, you know, we lose these people, we can't interact with them anymore, but there are so many more that we can continue to, to, to interact with and help and support, or at least, you know, give our, our, our um, give our appreciation to. So I think that's, that's a wonderful way to make them feel better, to emphasize the unity in our society. That's one of our strengths. And to also make sure that all of us individually have the ability to, to keep this going um, in the best way possible. So um, I think that that's, that's where my thoughts are, you know, a couple of hours after, after hearing about this terrible thing. And, and I think that's, that's a, a healthy way to deal, a healthy and constructive way to deal with this terrible loss. Nazar, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. And thank you. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Please check out another installment tomorrow. This episode was produced by The Podwaves. If you have any questions or comments about this or any other episode, please drop us an email at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, Shalom. Shalom.